Hello, and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. A lot of our religious understandings get formed when we're children, if you grow up in a religious tradition. And sometimes this is actually a good thing. So if you are a six-year-old who has this deep feeling of the love of God, or if you are an 85-year-old theologian with two PhDs who has this deep feeling of the love of God, there's really not a lot of difference in the profundity of that understanding of who God is. A sense of God's presence, a sense of God's love, a sense of God's goodness, that's kind of as profound as it gets, whoever you are in life. That being said, when it comes to certain theological issues, those childhood understandings can be pretty problematic, and maybe nowhere more so than thinking about heaven and hell. So I once heard the story told by a theologian that he was on an airplane, and he's a theologian and also a minister. And he was working on a sermon, and the guy next to him kept looking over at his paper and finally said, what are you working on? And the theologian said, well, I'm a minister, and this is my sermon. And the guy next to him said, oh, a minister. You know, I I went to church when I was a kid. I don't believe any of that stuff. All I need is the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's all the Christianity I need. And so the theologian was like, oh, well, that's not very nice of you to say. But um, what do you do? And the guy said, I am an astrophysicist. And the theologian said, Oh, yeah. I I learned about that as a kid. You know, twinkle, twinkle, little star. That's all the astrophysics I need. That's, That's pretty much the extent of the wisdom astrophysics has to convey. And I think that this is a great illustration of the way in which our childhood understanding can be very limiting. And if we stop with a childhood understanding, then we're really not getting a very full picture. So when we think about heaven, we might think about a perfect city, or a kind of permanent vacation, or a place with all-you-can-eat ice cream and nonstop popcorn shrimp, or whatever it is you're into, people play golf all day or go shopping, that has literally nothing to do with the biblical or the early church idea of heaven. It's not it at all. Heaven is certainly not a place somewhere above the clouds where you do a lot of chillaxing. And then it's maybe even worse when we think about hell. So hell, from this sort of childhood understanding, is a dark cave filled with guys with pitchforks, and there are leaping flames and suffering people, and in my childhood imagining lots of stalactites and stalagmites. That is also not hell. Hell is not a place like 400 feet under the ground, somewhere between the Earth's core and mantle or whatever. That is not hell. And for some of us, the most obviously childish corners get knocked off of these concepts. We think, okay, well, hell is a place of eternal torment, but it's not physically like under my feet. And heaven is a place of eternal relaxation, but it's sort of only metaphorically above the clouds. It's somewhere else, somewhere in a kind of a spiritual world. But hell and heaven are neither places that you can find on an actual map of the universe, nor are they places that exist in some sort of spiritual plane. Heaven and hell, not actually places. So if we believe in eternal life, 
but we don't believe that heaven is a place, what do we actually believe about it? Well, you could look at the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John, in which Christ tells us, After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all people, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So this is eternal life. It is to know God. In the writings of St. Cyril of Jerusalem, one of the great writers of the early church, he has these series of what are called catechetical lectures, these lectures he gave introducing people to the Christian faith. He talks about what eternal life is. And he says, the real and true life is the Father, who through the Son in the Holy Spirit pours forth as from a fountain his heavenly gifts to all. So for the early church and for Christ as articulated in the Gospel of John, eternal life is God, is the knowledge of God, is the presence of God. Eternal life is being in the presence of God. So heaven, eternal life, is not a place that we go to. It is a state that we are in. It is the state of being in the presence of God, in the relationship with God that is pouring eternal life, the true life, the fullness of life into us through the Son in the Holy Spirit. So if that's the case, where did all this idea of uh, heaven being this perfect place where you get to have unlimited um, delightful experiences? If you were a big fan of cars on earth, you have like a whole garage full of Lamborghinis. If you were a fan of bowling on earth, you have the world's best private bowling alley. Where did we get this crazy picture of heaven if that has nothing to do with what we're talking about? Well, it sort of does. So in this life, everything that we take delight in, everything we take joy in, and especially the most important things which we deeply long for, these are all experiences of the gifts of God, in a sense of almost the nature of God. So if you spend your life wanting to be loved, loved by strangers, loved by friends, loved by romantic intrigues, loved by whomever, loved by your children, loved by your parents, in a sense what you're really seeking is not a relationship with an individual, it is love itself. And love is something that comes from God. It is part of the nature of God. St. John says it is the nature of God. If you have spent your life questing after truth, scientific truth, religious truth, just trying to understand profound truth, Christ is the one who says, I am the truth and the life and the way. Truth actually is a person. If you are someone who has spent your life looking for peace, internal peace, living peacefully in the world, if you are someone who's spent your life looking for justice, if you've spent your life looking for beauty, if you've spent your life looking for harmony, all these things are actually, in a sense, facets of the one good or ways of knowing the one good who is God. So if you stare up at the sun you pretty soon will not be able to see very well because it's just too much light to take in. It is overwhelming your optic nerve. You can't just stare at the sun all day long and still have functional eyes. It's too much light. But if you take that 
pure white light from the sun and you hold a prism up to it, then it'll split it into a spectrum of colors. Instead of just the blinding white light, you have a blue that you can actually stare at. It's totally comprehensible. It won't make you go blind. You have a red you can stare at, an orange you can stare at, a green you can stare at. So filtered through the prism, the light is comprehensible. And God is kind of the same way. If you try and stare directly at God head on, there's too much information. There's too much God. All you will have is blackness, darkness, in the way you would if you stared at the sun too long. You can't take him in. But filtered through his creation, we can know the goodness of God. And it's the goodness of God is one, like the white light is one, but it gets broken up into all these different colors which we can experience in the world. So we experience something like justice or peace or beauty or love or joy or compassion or harmony or truth. We see these as different qualities in the world. But really, those are just experiences of the nature of God. And to be in heaven is to have the unmediated experience of his nature. It is having the unmediated experience of God in which we are just completely overwhelmed by the fire hose of all beauty, all truth, all joy, all love, the source of all these things we see face to face. This is what it is to be in heaven. So while you don't have your own private bowling alley, any joy any feeling of exaltation that you have ever gotten from bowling will be magnified times a billion. It's literally infinitely magnified by the one who is infinite, standing face to face with him. While you won't necessarily be doing math problems on a board with Albert Einstein or Pythagoras or whomever in heaven, if you are someone who finds um, a depth of meaning in mathematical truth, any sense of satisfaction or joy that you've received from the exercise of discovering truth, that will be magnified by an infinite amount, by the one who is infinite, who is the source of all truth. Everything that we live for in this life, everything that we think we would miss if we left this life, all of those things are actually experiences of God. So in the City of God, St. Augustine says, of, of our experience of God when we meet him face to face, he shall be the end of our desires. Not the end of desire, but the goal of all our desires. He shall be the end of our desires, who shall be contemplated without ceasing, loved without cloy, and praised without weariness. And so while heaven isn't the um, laundry list of everything I would have liked to have done on earth I will somehow get to do for an unlimited duration in heaven on this permanent vacation, it is literally infinitely better than that. Because God is beyond all that we can conceive. So to delight purely in God is infinite happiness, infinite joy, infinite delight. But it's a lot less comprehensible than going to a city where you get to go bowling all the time. So there are lots of unanswered questions. Scripture doesn't tell us all about heaven. Here's uh, what it looks like. Here's uh, what you do there. Here's who you will see there. And this is because trying to contemplate eternal life in the presence of God, this is literally infinitely above our pay grade. Who knows? Who could possibly describe that? What we can say is that God is good. God is love. And it will be infinitely better than anything we could ask for or imagine.
But then there's the other place. So we also have a lot of very mistaken ideas about hell. And not just about geographically mistaken ideas, like it's being somewhere underground, nor visually mistaken ideas, like my childhood image of lots of stalactites and stalagmites, but particularly about God and his relationship to hell. There is one school of theology that believes that from the beginning, God just chooses some people to cast into an eternal torture chamber and some people to give eternal reward for his own reasons, really just to kind of show us all who's boss. He can do whatever he wants. He's almighty. So he chooses Larry and says, like, you're going to be tortured eternally. He chooses Jane and says, you're going to have eternal delight. That's just the way it is. Nothing you did, nothing you thought, nothing about you actually affected this. This is just for my glory. This kind of turns God into this capricious, arbitrary, terrifying, weird figure that I don't know how you could equate with the source of all love. Um, It's not found in Holy Scripture, and it's certainly not found in the theology of the church, but it is a popular theology these days. Um, No disrespect if that's your thing, but it's just not my thing. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, There's another theology which basically sees God as the ultimate accountant, He has a giant book in heaven, all of our names are in it, and he's putting little tick marks next to our name every time we do something wrong, and little uh, check marks every time we do something right. And at the end of time, or at the end of our lives, God is going to open the book, and he's going to add up all the little tick marks and add up all the little check marks, and if we have more checks than ticks, then we get into heaven. If we have more ticks than checks, then we get into hell. And that's just the way it is. God is a meticulous accountant. And In this theology, you either earn heaven or you earn hell. So heaven is your reward for good behavior. Hell is your punishment for bad behavior. But it's all about you. It's really not about God. You kind of force his hand one way or the other. It's really just up to you. So this is also a theology that would be seen by the early church as very strange because it's a theology talking about God who is incarnate in Christ. God the Son, Jesus Christ, is the person who ate with prostitutes and tax collectors and all sorts of sinners. And not like had a taco on the street, but had like long, intense conversations over dinner, dinner parties that were hours long. Christ came to spend time with all sorts of people. And in the early church, God was definitely not seen as a cosmic accountant, nor was he seen as this capricious, arbitrary figure who liked torturing people for his own reasons. God was seen as what the fathers of the church would call philanthropos, the lover of humanity. And by this they meant that God literally infinitely loves every single human. So God loves Mother Teresa and St. Francis and the people who are like really getting it right and are very holy and pray all the time and do lots of kind things. But God is also completely and totally, utterly in love with the people who aren't doing all the right things, with really selfish people, with people who barely ever pray, with people who are just obsessed with their own stupid little concerns. Like, God is smitten with us, people like me. 
God is like ravishingly in love with everybody. So not only the great people who are doing lots of kind things and praying a lot, and the very mediocre people like myself who really don't pray enough, who definitely don't read enough scripture, who aren't doing enough at all. And then even with murderers, with arsonists, God loves the worst of the worst. God loves the uh, fascist dictator. God loves the the bomb-lobbing anarchist. God loves Stalin just as much as he loves anybody else, everybody else. God's love is literally infinite for every human being. So you who are listening to this podcast right now, you should know that God is completely and totally nuts about you. He loves you more than anyone ever has or anyone ever will love you. He is the source of all love, and he is totally, uniquely focused on you and every single other human who has ever lived or ever will live. So that being the case, what's up with the cosmic torture chamber? So God gives all of us the gift of freedom. And as I've probably said before, freedom is a necessary condition for love. God doesn't want our obedience. God doesn't want our fear. God wants our love. God wants us to fall in love with him a teeny, teeny, tiny bit in the same way that he has fallen in love massively with us, infinitely with us. But we can't do that if we are forced. Like you can't force someone to fall in love with you. You can't intimidate them into falling in love with you. You can't bribe them into falling in love with you. Love has to be a free gift. So if you walk up to someone on the street with a gun and say, fall in love with me or I'm going to kill you, they might pretend to fall in love with you because they don't want to die, but that's not actually what we mean when we talk about love. In the same way, if you walk up to someone on the street with like a giant million dollar novelty check and say, hey, I'll give you this huge check for a million dollars if you fall in love with me, they might pretend to fall in love with you, but that's also not love. And then if you walk up to someone on the street and you slip something into their cocktail that makes them act like they're falling in love with you, that is certainly not love. That is drugging someone. Love is only something that is given in freedom. So to fall in love with someone has to be something that you do freely. And the possibility, the conditions for falling in love are also the same conditions for not loving for choosing not to love, for turning away from someone. And so God gives us the freedom to love him or to turn away. So if you think that it's all about what you've done and uh, you've got so many tick mark next to your name that there is no way that God wants to be with you, literally everything in the gospel is about that situation. And Christ says things like, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, who returns to God, than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Christ tells the story of um, the publican and the Pharisee, where the Pharisee's like, I'm so amazing. Thank you for making me perfect. I rule. The publican is like, I am I can't believe all these things I've done. Here's this laundry list of all the people I've cheated, all the people I've betrayed, all this terrible stuff. And Christ said, it's actually the publican, this one who's making this laundry list of all the stuff he's done wrong, that went home righteous, that went home justified, that went home as a holy person. What? That's crazy. 
he, he becomes the saint, this publican, and this person who is so proud of all his achievements is not. Most of all, Christ tells the story of the prodigal son, in which the son takes half of his father's goods, he spends them on literally nothing, he starts living a life of deprivation, he comes to his senses, returns to his father and says, you know, I've wasted half of everything you spent your life working for, I don't deserve to be treated like your son, just treat me like one of your slaves, give me a morsel of food and a place to sleep, and I will just work hard the rest of my days. And instead of taking him up on his offer, the father calls for the most beautiful robe, for rings to be put on his fingers, for a calf to be slaughtered so they can celebrate, and says, my son who was dead has returned to me. Um, This is God's attitude to us after we kill uh, 10 people, or after we cheat on our spouse, or after we burn down a building, or after we judge our neighbors, or after we gossip, or after we are unkind to a homeless person, whatever it is that you need to confess, God's response is basically always the same. If your repentance is sincere, if you are truly changing your life, if you're returning to the Lord, then it's a done deal. So that freedom that we can use to return to God is the same freedom that we use to turn away from God. And hell is the description of what it is to turn away from God. It is not a torture chamber into which he casts us in punishment for what we've done, or for his own reasons, or what we have lacked in belief. It is literally the state of rejecting God. But the thing is, all being is dependent on God. So you can't actually reject God and get away from him. You are just eternally in the presence of God while hating God. To quote one of my favorite professors from grad school, Metropolitan Callistus Ware, hell is not so much a place where God imprisons humans as a place where humans, by misusing their free will, choose to imprison themselves. And even in hell, the wicked are not deprived of the love of God, but by their own choice, they experience as suffering what the saints experience as joy. So they experience the love of God, the goodness of God, the joy of God, the beauty of God, the peace of God as suffering. It's not that God creates pain and awfulness and a underground prison for them. It's that all the gifts that he is giving, they experience as suffering. But again, God is not offering one person torture and the other love. He's only offering love to both. But in the words of the Russian theologian Vladimir Lossky, the love of God will be an intolerable torment to those who have not acquired it within themselves. So when we see depictions of an unmediated experience of God the Father in the Old Testament, we see things like the fire coming down over Mount Sinai. We see things like the pillar of fire that led the Israelites in the desert. In the New Testament, when Christ and the apostles go up the mountain at the transfiguration, there is this blinding, luminous cloud of light above the mountain. When the Pentecost happens and the Holy Spirit comes to the disciples, they receive these tongues of flame above their heads. We're told that Christ will baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. Fire is this depiction of God's love, of God's glory, of the nature of God. He is a consuming fire, we are told. 
So hellfire is not the worst punishment that God could think of to have people roasting alive for all time. It's just the glory of God. It's just the love of God. It's just the beauty of God. It's just the light of God, which you can either experience as glory and beauty and love, or you can hate and you can experience it as suffering and torment. God doesn't want anybody to experience him as suffering and torment. He wants everyone to experience love as love, peace as peace, beauty as beauty, God as God. But we get to make that choice. So you have this wonderful parable in the New Testament about the wedding. So there's this king who's having a wedding feast for his son. Nobody shows up. He has like the Rolling Stones are playing. He has this incredible banquet. It's like caviar as far as the eye can see. And it's just an empty banquet hall. And so he says to his servants, call everybody in off the street. Invite everybody in. And so they all come and everyone is given a wedding garment. Everybody's given a fabulous uh, Armani tuxedo and a Balenciaga gown, and they're ushered into the wedding. And the king comes up to someone who's not wearing a wedding garment, and he's like, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the guy's like, uh, I just thought I'd do it in my way. You know, I, I really don't need your pity. I don't need your hand-me-down clothes. I'm here doing my thing on my own terms. And The parable doesn't say the king chopped off his head or burned him alive or something, but he's cast out. You can't be there without the wedding garment. And so in heaven, in eternal life, in the presence of God, we have to really go on God's terms, which are not terms of humiliation or groveling or saying, oh, I'm so awful. I hate myself. I'm basically the worst person who's ever lived. We have to go in terms of accepting love and goodness, and forgiveness, and grace, we have to take God's love into ourselves. And if that sounds like the worst thing ever, then we don't have to do it. But it's going to be a very unpleasant experience. So the big question becomes, can you make that decision on the other side of the tomb? Or is that a decision you can only make here and now? And we don't have an answer to that. Certainly our hope is that On the other side of the tomb, everybody who meets God face to face says, Oh my gosh, this is what I've been missing all along? This is what I was missing by doing all that judging of other people? All that unkindness? All that gossiping? This is what I've been missing in saying, Oh, there is no God, that's a bunch of malarkey? This is what I've been missing in whatever it is I was doing that was separating me from God? Focusing too much on shopping, or my job, or golf, or whatever? Man, I'm so glad I woke up to this. Yes, give me all the love. Or maybe we can't. Maybe once we exit time, we are eternally who we are. And if we are rejecting him now, then we reject him forever. That's the big question mark. And that's the reason why we as Episcopalians, as other members of the Anglican Communion, as Roman Catholics, as Eastern Orthodox, that's why our traditions pray for the dead. We pray that our hearts would be open more and more to the love of God, and that we wouldn't be the schmucks that we are right now for all eternity. Again, the thing about thinking about all this stuff is that it is so far beyond what we can really wrap our minds around. So we don't have all the answers about heaven and hell, 
we do have one answer, which is that God is love. God loves each of us infinitely, eternally. And God wants us to receive his love into our hearts and to live it out towards others, to live out kindness, to live out mercy, to live out selflessness, to live out joy, to be people who manifest all the signs of his presence. Kindness, selflessness, generosity, compassion, beauty, truth, justice, all this stuff. This is what we are called to as human beings. And we know that in this life, when we're doing those things well, that is the apex of what it is to be human. And in the life to come, we will see the source of all those traits face to face. And I pray that I and each of us will rejoice in that. Thanks for joining me for the history of Christianity. It's great to be with you.